Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. So welcome to this week's episode of The Flow Line. We're here in the virtual world with Andrew Morris. Oh, sorry, I got a call there. With, uh, with Andrew Morris from TWMA, we've decided to have this special guest uh, on to help highlight uh, and to get a better understanding of some really cool technology that has a huge impact on drilling fluids performance. Uh, we'll, also, we'll also, you know, chat a little bit about overseas activity and, and Andrew's journey throughout his oil and gas career. Uh, so Andrew comes to us from from Aberdeen, correct? Yep. Okay. So uh, where he spent the last decade in various roles, starting as a project engineer uh, to a current role as technical sales manager at TWMA. Um, Andrew, how's everything going in the UK with regards to oil and gas right now? I mean, we're, you know, we, we certainly have an idea globally what's going on. Um, but you know, we, we're here in the U S so give us a little overview as to what's going on over there. Yeah. So it's not, it's like everything else. It's impacted by what's going on the fallen oil price, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. There is a downturn in drilling, uh, Operators are slashing budgets, they're cutting drilling activity, they're uh, backing off with activity. So we're seeing that across the business. Um, at the same time, there are clients that are preparing budgets for up-and-coming drilling programs. So they're still going full guns ahead, um, maybe taking this opportunity to try and squeeze pricing down a little bit, which is, yeah. uh, they'll always take that. Um, but yeah, there are downsides which we're seeing uh, drilling activity tailing off. Uh, but there are again upsides in the industry. People are still planning, planning ahead. There are yeah. projects going to be starting in the next six months, and uh, we're just trying our best to be part of that. Yeah, no kidding. So locally, uh, from a rig count perspective, are you guys seeing the turn right now, or do you guys still anticipate a further drop? Um, we're pr- the. I mean, if we look at some of the data we get from Rystad, we're looking at it probably leveling out at the, the bottom end at the moment, okay. probably steadied the ship. We're going to see a little uptick over the next 12 months, but nothing significant. And so I'd say we're bottomed out and uh, hopefully we can start an upward trend going yeah. forward. No, Andrew, that's... since, oh, sorry. I mean, since most of that work is offshore, you know, my, my experience when I worked offshore and, and internationally, there were certainly uh, you know, maybe not in Europe, but still government obligations and, and uh, you know, production sharing agreements and things to be had. And so, you know, in, in unconventionals, which is predominantly where we work, they can lay down the rig tomorrow if they want to. They, they always seem to find a way out. But it's, mm-hmm. did you guys see a little bit of a lag and then it takes a little bit longer to pick back up or, or were, they, were they pretty quick at shutting things down as, uh, as the price of oil dropped? And no, I wouldn't say they were, um, they, it wasn't overnight for sure. There was a lag and um, we've see, still, we've seen the uh, projects run its natural course and sometimes taking a, they're taking a detailed look at their costs and other projects and decided to shut down or scale back. So there have been, it's been a mixture, but it hasn't been instantaneous. It isn't as maybe instantaneous as we've been seeing in our U.S. land business, for example. Um, there has been a little bit of a lag delay. And when the oil price starts trending downwards, maybe a step back to look at how the world is maybe going to react or the local uh, government are going to react to the ongoing uh, COVID-19 issues. And then they took an informed decision from there. So it hasn't gotcha. been as instantaneous as the U.S. Okay. Interesting. That was a great point, Matt. I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, so, so more about, uh, yourself, Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up uh, getting into oil and gas and then, you know, with TWMA? Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, drill and waste management effectively was a family business for me. So growing up, I, uh, my, uh, my father was in, uh, the drill and waste management industry, uh, traveled the world, uh, when we were younger and, uh, more or less learned, uh, a lot about the business, working in the workshop from an early teenager, uh, learning the skills. Some of the people I work with today, I actually knew when I was 11, 12 and working with them 
just as uh, a bit of um, support in the workshop, stripping their units, building them back up again. And uh, to be honest, when I when I was growing up, I went to university. I went and did a degree in mechanical engineering. I didn't actually expect um, to go into the oil industry. Um, it, it was great to me growing up. It was fantastic. It great, gave me a great opportunity in life. Um, but I, I didn't necessarily look at that. I have interest in motorsport, for example. So at that point in time, I thought that's where I want to go. Um, but it comes to a point where you graduate and you look at the opportunities there. And uh, being in Aberdeen, being in the UK, the oil industry is front and center. So uh, I ended up joining. Um, I ended up joining Halliburton. I spent the majority of the next seven years, well, six years there. And uh, yeah, just learned the trades. Stuck with the family trade being uh, drill and waste management. Uh, a lot of the people you've spoken to, Derek, various other locations that you mentioned previously, uh, dealt with through my time working for Bayroid. Worked overseas um, with them in uh, Africa. Uh, got to experience that at maybe one of the tougher times. And then uh, I joined TWMA in the middle of 2016 in a new position um, that was more focused on sales, tenders, and proposals. Um, joined that because um, I had a contact here at the time. Uh, we knew each other, we knew how it worked. And then from there, it's kind of evolved. Um, my position is very much, again, supporting the sales teams in each of the local areas. I provide technical support. I provide um, commercial support. I provide... Um, support when it comes to maybe um, client events, uh, sales, uh, sales events such as uh, Adipec, for example. We do a lot of, we do a lot there um, every year. We actually do, we're trying to make it more um, educational when we go there. So we have um, presentations set up for clients to come and see. So we pick certain topics like what is drill and waste management. Uh, the TCC Rotomills discuss, we present it to a lot of people there. And we use that as a, a great platform to try and educate our customers, our colleagues, and sometimes the com competition at what we do. So um, I get involved with that. And then more recently, I've also been involved in some of the upgrades we're doing to our engineering department. So we've, cool. we've put in a new sort of engineering structure and uh, we're trying to just reorganize a couple areas there. So I've been supporting that. Uh, okay. My time. So, so, yeah. Can you help describe what it means to you, what, what total waste management is and not necessarily from a company's perspective, but like, what does it mean total waste management? Cause I feel like that's a pretty broad idea. Uh, could you give the listeners some context behind that? Yeah, it's basically a company that um, can provide a solution for all waste management applications. We are a singularly focused drill and waste management company. We're not a company that has, multiple branches and is involved maybe in fluids or cementing it is focused singularly on drill and waste management waste generated at source um, and we provide a solution to ultimately contain it and store it process it and try and extract value from it because ultimately in this day and age we want to maximize value from the waste what can we reuse how can we reuse it and we pr try and provide our specialist opinion to clients to show them how they can engineer best practices into their operation and have increased environmental stewardship by having the best environmental policy or practice when it comes to building waste management and how sure. a customized solution can fit into theirs. So that's, to me, that's what DWMA is. I that's I just was going to say, like, I think that, I mean, Justin and I can relate in as much as I think when you do one thing really, really well um, and have that singular focus, mm -hmm. uh, it just makes a huge difference on the quality of your work. And, uh, you know, we, we talk to our customers and they want us to do, you know, some sort of bundled offering. And it's like, well, we're really good at one thing and we live and die by, you know, something that is a huge cost contributor if done, if done poorly and a huge cost savings have done really well. And certainly waste management falls directly into that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's so many benefits and some of them are difficult to quantify. Like you mentioned, just the, you know, the stewardship benefits and that sort of thing, but they're there. Um, and if you know how to capture all of that value, 
um, as opposed to, I think, you know, a really big shop that says, well, we also dabble in this. If, you know, if you want to go to the same store for everything, um, that specialization, I think, makes a big difference. And I was just going to ask, uh, I mean, what do you, um, what have you observed, you know, from that perspective of, of specialization? Is there anything in particular that you appreciate or, or maybe have noticed as opposed to, you know, a larger organization where they may offer a service but not have the focus that you guys have? Yeah, and I think I come with uh, the... I can come with the perspective of being involved in an organization that has a lot of product lines. And uh, I'm not going to say the neglect focus, but focus is diluted. And so you can't concentrate on one area. Um, and then coming here, I mean, everything, every department, if you have a, a health and safety department, it's focused on drill and waste management. Mm-hmm. If you have an engineering department, it's focused on engineering of drill and waste management solutions. So be it TWMA or another um, company that's specialist in their, uh, in their field, it brings a strong benefit to an operation. And you see nowadays um, that clients recognize that, yes, there will always be the um, tenders you go into or the opportunities you go into. They think one contract, one service provider is fantastic. That's, that's given. But if you can educate them enough and show them that well actually sometimes be it drill and waste management or maybe be it a specific downhole tool if there is a specialist in that field maybe in that location that specialist is it actually is worthwhile in some instances just going with that because you're going to get return the greatest value and you're going to do things more efficiently and they need to recognize in certain applications going with a specialist is the right way i like it good answer and that was a great question, Matt. Um, so let's sh- pivot a little bit here. Um, certainly want to talk about Rotomill, and that, that's something that's, uh, I think, a unique offering with, from you guys, if, if I'm understanding correctly. Um, could you describe, you know, just basically what is Rotomill? Um, let's just start off with that. How would you describe the Rotomill, Rotomill uh, equipment or technology? So in a nutshell, the TCC Rotomill is a, a solution to treat oil-based mud drill cuttings at source or off-site. So it is a treatment solution to take raw drill cuttings that you collect off the shale shaker and process it and return back and separate that material into three constituent parts. So you've got your recovered solids, your covered water, and your recovered oil. And what the system is doing is treating that the recovered solids to a level that it's safe to discharge. And uh, the water is clean that you can maybe reuse it uh, on site or it's safe for disposal in most locations. Uh, And you're recovering the oil that has very, um, well, no degradation to it versus virgin oil or base fluid. And giving that back to the client to be able to reuse, or it could be reused for, for the applications like powering generators, or used as a fuel um, for other applications. So that effectively is what it is. Its primary purpose is a treatment tool of oil-based mud drill cuttings. Now, is that is that predominantly done mechanically? Yeah, so the system is, it, the thermal treatment system, the, the process to generate heat is through friction. So the waste is the material that will generate friction. So we have the heart of the TCC rotor mill is a hammer mill. It's a series of hammers that rotate at 600 RPM. You feed drill and waste into it and the mechanical action of the hammers uh, agitating against the um, drill cuttings creates friction and ultimately heat. You regulate that heat by introducing more drill cuttings, fresh drill cuttings to the uh, process mill and then you'll recover a fine powder and you'll recover a byproduct in oil and water. The heat within the um, TCC rotomill is, for thermal treatment terms, relatively low. So we operate between 248 and 278 degrees Celsius. Um, in that process, the oil and water is fl- flash evaporated and the solids recovered at less than 1% oil and cuttings. We typically get less than below 1.0.1% oil and cuttings. 
the oil and water as a gas is then condensed through a three-stage condensing system. So we have a cyclone system to knock, that, knock out any solids entrained within the gas. Uh, we then have an oil condenser, which will reduce the temperature of the gas to around 103, 104 degrees Celsius. That means the water is still a gas, but the oil is condensed. And then we have a steam condenser, which will recover that water uh, down at 40 degrees and split the two. We also have on the back end of the TC rotor mill process, uh, oil water separator system that will take out any light oil fractions that we recover. So yeah, it's there's probably three stages of process within the TCC rotomill system to recover the three products, the three byproducts or constituent parts. And one, one thing that I, I wanted to note is, is kind of looking at some of the numbers. One of, one of the conversations we have with our customers who talk about, you know, oh, I can, I can discharge this or I can, I can bury mm -hmm. the cuttings on site and what a great thing that is. Um, they say, oh, well, we'll use synthetic-based mud. And that's all well and good, except for we typically use a calcium chloride internal phase, which means if they just think using a synthetic oil is is going to get you there from a compliance perspective, it's it's not the case. Um, and granted, we you know AES we've we've done this with customers in the Northeast where we've used a a chloride free system. We we call it Pure Star, uh, which doesn't use calcium chloride as the internal phase, but there's obviously a cost to that, um, and Specifically, uh, that's something where the the water that you recover, Andrew, if I'm not mistaken, has pretty low chlorides and, and typically falls within some of those what they call sodium absorption ratio requirements, um, where they can be buried in locations like Wyoming and and uh, Colorado, I believe. Yeah. So the the system is not. We don't want people to think that the system will reduce chloride levels. I mean, if mm -hmm. chloride levels going in they will be present coming out. They will be entrained in a, one of the byproducts, either the solids or the water. Right. Um, and um, if there is further treatment needed afterwards, yes, we do do it. Um, there are certain locations that have chloride restrictions for disposal on, uh, on site. So we just have to work around what any secondary treatment is for that. In the okay. primary locations we are at the moment, um, chloride levels aren't looked at as a as a major factor and um, okay. comes to disposal. Okay. My understanding was that there was part of the process where you have the ability though to segregate some of the waste that has that contains the chlorides. It's well if it, if the chlorides are within the solids or they're with entrained within the water, we can segregate mm -hmm. that because it's okay. split into three parts. So yes, there are ways to segregate that. Okay. That's what I thought. Is it it just looked like you had some interesting use cases maybe I don't know from a while ago. Uh, that were published mm -hmm. uh, that showed y'all were able to do that. I thought that was particularly interesting um, just because it's another option to look at um, in those restricted areas. Yeah. So Andrew, and these are some, you know, very interesting points with regards to the separation. Is this, was this, or is this predominantly used offshore or, or have you guys used this kind of all throughout both land and offshore or what, what does that look like? We've got a, we've got a large mixture of uh, applications. So yes, uh, this has been used offshore, but it was first used onshore. So it was hmm. primarily used as um, a means of uh, processing drilling waste after the skipping, after skipping ship application. So they were hauling cuttings off from the rig sites and skips. So we're bringing them to our processing facility and uh, and basically we were treating them there and we were recovering all the components we talked about, the solids, oil and water, and using them for further application or disposing of them safely. Then in 2001, a client came to us and challenged, hey, why don't you put this at the rig site? Uh, we want to do that. So we did that. We packaged it up, we uh, modularized it, and uh, we put it on a rig. So since then, we have used it at a rig site. We've uh, truck mounted the system and gone all, all over US land, Canada with it. Um, mm -hmm. We've put it on artificial islands. We've put it on backs of boats. Uh, oh, wow. we've, in we've installed it on some of the smallest jackets in the world. So, mm -hmm. I mean, this system we're trying to, uh, the challenge is always straightforward. Make it as small as possible with the greatest output. Of course. So, uh, <laughs> rigs it. 
rigs are getting bigger, but there's less deck space. So uh, you have to engineer that challenge in. But um, yeah, I mean, we've we started to introduce new ways of packaging it, new ways of uh, introducing it. And uh, the, the vessel concept was one of our more recent um, solutions last year. Gotcha. With, res- with respect to uh, just as far as these packages in particular, since you've been able to modularize it or perhaps truck mounted, um, does that have a pretty significant bearing on limited rig up time to get ready? Yeah, so it does. I mean, from a, from a modular aspect, I mean, people think these systems take weeks to get installed on a rig. They need to be put in a shipyard. Uh, the rig needs to come into a shipyard. You need to lift it all and you need specialist tools. It isn't the fact. I mean, what we what you need to try and design is a offshore compliant system that you could be lifted on and off the rig offshore uh, because it may need to be moved around the rig depending on the application. In the completion phase, there's obviously a bigger equipment spread. You may be occupying deck space, so you need to be able to move it with the tools that you have at the rig site. So the cranes there, the, the equipment uh, or so forth. So from an installation point of view, for a large scale installation, we're talking installate the timeline down below 10 days to get this integrated into a rig site. For a truck mounted system at a rig, you're talking 48 hours because everything is relatively skid mounted. You're just putting some interface uh, connections um, into the system there. Interesting. So. If you say like on a land rig, and I'm just curious because that's most of my experience has been on land, a little bit of offshore, but um, like, what does it look like from a footprint standpoint? Like, is it, is it take up like as much room as say like a big bowl centrifuge or like, what is that? Can you give some perspective as to how much room it takes up? If you're looking at two 40 foot trailers, that's side by side. That's what you're taking in front of uh, as as footprint Ah, and what's within those 40 foot trailers like i talked about they've got the the heart the tcc rotor mill which is the process mill uh you've got the condenser system coolant skid drive system uh, and you also have the control room uh, and workshop so we try and keep everything with on the skids uh, and basically everything's there so you can drive up there's some interface pipe work uh, that you'll um you'll connect up and then you're ready to go with respect to, I mean, I know a lot of the zero discharge offshore type applications, I think, you know, there are a number of waste management solutions, considerations. When we think about waste minimization opportunities on land, you know, typically smaller sol- uh, smaller uh, hole sizes, uh, shorter wells as far as time goes, that, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Would it be common to have this system kind of in a central location and haul cuttings to it, or would it be that you would put it on location and move it with the rig? I guess would what, what do you think is the best way to do that? So actually, that's a good question because in the last twelve months we've looked at various solutions for this. So we've looked at solutions that we're trucking from rig site to rig site uh, due to the flexibility and the technology. And we can move it very quickly, process and move. Uh, We've looked at maybe setting this up in a landfill, taking various waste streams in uh, and treating it there. And we've also looked at operators that have got two, three, four rigs within a 10, 15 mile radius of each other. You taking a disused rig pad, setting up there, bringing all the cuttings in and what value that uh, delivers. What we've found generates the more most value is the more waste. So if you've got two or three rigs from one operator uh, within close, close proximity, you can bring those cuttings to one place. Uh, you can dispose of the solids at that on that rig pad within the lease lines, uh, and you can return the value quite quickly back to the operator at source. So when we talk about centralized, sometimes people think, well, a centralized plant could be 50 miles away. What we're saying is we're sort of bringing a at source centralized um, uh, system. So we're we're taking cuttings from multiple rig sites that are relatively close to each other, reducing the ultimate haul off to what could be a disposal facility 50 to 100 miles away and uh, recovering a lot of the value right there and then uh, so they can reuse it. 
I think that's. I wish, I, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. And uh, just by doing doing that, we're seeing that um, two major trends. We're seeing if we can process its source or process uh, its centralized source, we can reduce the cost. Firstly, of uh, drill and waste management by up to forty percent. But one of the big things is uh, CO two emissions. Uh, the amount of CO2 emissions by bringing the process into a centralized or at source um, facility is reducing it by half. So you've got trucks, you've got another maybe older treatment system that generates higher CO2 emissions. Um, you've got then secondary transportation, all eliminated by bringing it to source. And that's that's been significant. Um, we want to educate the clients not only on their total cost of ownership, but their operational efficiencies, where they can improve upon their HSE, health and safety, their environmental, how that improves. So it is an overall education when it comes to a project like this. And it's across the board, we can teach uh, new learning. We can show them what to do. And I think that's a huge deal. And one thing that I think we as the oil field can do a lot better on, especially in the US, you know, it's it's kind of one of those, you go out to some of these locations and, and the economy lives and dies by the oil field. And so mm. it's very difficult in the midst of that to find out that anybody might be skeptical or, or not have trust about the value energy brings. And so I think it, an interesting case study is moving into, you know, the Northeastern United States, for example, uh, where you had people who really didn't trust oil and gas companies. Um, and so part of it was even, um, you know, minimizing truck movements, as you say, or, hey, we're doing this in the most responsible way, way possible. And you guys can offer up the specifics. Here are some benchmarks you can tell the neighbors about why we're being good stewards and why we're going to minimize our impact, which... Um, I'll go ahead and, and say, you know, one of the interesting things with our, our chloride free system was just simply not having to truck waste everywhere uh, mm -hmm. in that you would have to drive through townships to get to the waste site, which meant that you had all the neighbors, all, they don't, they know there's drilling going on. But the other thing they know is that there's truck driving, truck drivers coming through in the middle of the night. And they're the ones seeing that all I, all I see are the negatives. Um, and when you can offer up that full story, I think it's kind of like, there's an Airbnb by my house. There's two Airbnbs, actually. One on one side, they're quiet as anything. It's near a big arts community. People stay and do their art events. It's great. The other side of us, there's always like super sketch parties going on and everything to the point where we're like reaching out to city council to get it regulated. Um, and you can see one, I think Airbnb is fine. The other one, it's, I think these guys are horrible for the neighborhood. And uh, if Airbnb isn't going to get their act right, I'll go to somebody else who will. Um, and I think to me, it's, it's an example that's current in my life where I look at the oil field and I'm like, let's not be the bad Airbnb. <laughs> well, actually on that point, I mean, you look at the, not only the US land, but the rest of the world. If you're drilling in Africa, for example, uh, and I've seen this, you're drilling in, um, national parks national parks of wildlife you have people going there as tourists they're wanting to see the big seven for example they're not wanting to see a truck full of cuttings going past yeah. uh, it's yeah. very much an image point of view i was also uh, working on a project in cyprus and uh, the cyprus the cypriot government they were i was with another company at the time and it was all about um it's installing an LMP. The Cypriot government doesn't want to see an LMP because right next to it's a beach and mm. they're more interested in their um, their tourism than the value of oil because it's not big to them. And it's it's visual perception. I mean, if you could drill a well uh, anywhere in the world behind closed doors, do everything at source, be self-sustainable, um, that's what you want to be. You don't want to be that distraction, like you say, that air, that bad Airbnb or distraction to your neighbors because you have to think about them. And your neighbors could be people, could also be animals, it could be wild uh, wildlife, trees, anything. So that's what we're trying to do, create something that's self-sustainable at source. One, uh, one other question that comes to mind is just with respect to the regulations, you know, the, the U.S. Is, is in some ways interesting because what state are you in can be a 
you know, a huge fact. Are you on federal land? Or are you on state land? Are you in Texas? Or are you in New Mexico? Are you mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania or West Virginia? And those are huge for disposal, waste management. Um, you know, the regulations change. Um, what kind of work do y'all have to do to make sure that everybody's kind of I, I, compliant seems to be an understatement because it's not just compliant. You're sort of leading the way, making sure customers understand what they can and can't do to understand the value proposition and the opportunity. Um, how, how much work is that for TWMA or have you found good resources to, to stay in the loop? Cause I know it's hard for us. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually a lot of the work. I mean, part of our time, and we've got a great team here. So, I mean, we've not really had to go out with, we've got a good team here in Aberdeen, but also a good team in all of our locations. Um, they uh, have enough knowledge to support um, our operators, our clients, um, uh, our environmental government, our legislative bodies. We can support them with any question they ask with regards to this. And a lot of our time when we're trying to draw up a solution is spent, I'm not going to say lobbying, but providing offset data that something is as good as it says on the tin. So we've spent time, as an example recently, in Egypt, where we've had an onshore facility and we've been skipping and shipping drill cuttings onshore. We proved uh, to the environmental body there um, that it's actually safe to, if using this technology, um, to treat drill cuttings at source and it's safe to dispose the recovered solids and water because it's uh, actually less harmful than, to the environment than the water-based mud cuttings that they're discharging to the sea already. So we do a lot of time and it may not always be to our benefit, but if we can start changing perception of certain technologies, certain application, it enables the wider um, market to uh, adopt new approaches and it makes it easier for technologies such as TCC Rotomill and thermal treatment at source processing to uh, be widely adopted and more local to the US as well. And we've done a lot with the Texas Railroad Commission trying to show show why what we're trying to do is actually better than the current practice of hauling off. So we provide uh, data on what the composition of the recovered material is, so the solids, what is it what, it, what can it be used for? Where can it go? Could it be reused in uh, roads? Uh, could it be used as a filler for concrete? And um, can it be, can we avoid it going to a, a landfill or to a disposal or into the ground? So we do a lot in the background with our HSE team, with our um, the environmental team within that, and also a lot with uh, our operations team who've got a lot of experience on how we can and use the material to and extract the most value from it. So yeah, to answer your question, probably about half the time we're trying to put across and show the value um, of all the material and what we're trying to do um, is better for their operation. I think that's a big part of the, I, I mean, Justin and I talk all the time about how do we, you know, how do we prove the value to our customers and, you know, the, some of it is, you know, we save, we save days on the rig, right? That's mud. Mm-hmm. We talk about, we run that well, we drill faster, we get off location faster. That's, you know, mm-hmm. and there's the value of that just in the dollars per day of being on location. There is value in, you know, cash flow. That well comes on faster, um, mm-hmm. assuming the price of oil is in the right spot. Um, it, you know, there, there's, but there's all these other hidden benefits um, and even from a, you know, beneficial, you know, if you're drilling in a populated area, what's it like if you can get that well done in 15 days instead of 30? Um, you know, that was in the Northeast. I think we, we, we used our system to drill the wells in seven instead of 30, which was what we were doing with water-based mud. Um, and the argument was that being on location for that very short period of time was not enough time for people to get really upset or kind of build up any, any frustration with traffic or anything like that, mm-hmm. um, is get in and out, get, do what you need to do and, and move on to the next. And I, I guess all that being said, there's, there's those hidden values there that you kind of, it's tough to characterize the big picture. And the worst part of it is if you extrapolate too much, people get really cynical about like, come on, you can't assign a dollar value to 
someone's feelings or public yeah. perception, but you have to acknowledge there's value there. Um, and have, I don't know this, this is an off the wall question, but have you guys been able to find anything that, uh, or maybe you have a specific instance where it was, we were able to offer this, this at a value and a, a customer said, wow, I didn't realize that. Or, or wow, that was another benefit that we really embrace, but can't quantify. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of scenarios. I mean, firstly, going back one point, I mean, you mentioned there to drill quicker. It means that they can drill a well quicker. They can pack up, get off site, actual rig cost, everything associated is uh, lower. From a waste management point of view, what I find is important, We're obviously today we're talking about the TC road to mill. It's one component in the waste management um, life cycle, or let's say the the um the straight line of uh, drilling a well i mean the tc road to mill treats the drilling waste but to treat the drilling waste you have to be able to have an effective transfer mechanism from collecting it from the shale shakers you need to be able to store it and those two components actually are the biggest factors in enabling a, dr a rig to drill quicker so if you can provide a handling and storage system that can enable a rig to maximize its ROPs uh, and not create that bottleneck of, oh, it's just it's the waste management slowing things down, then that then allows the drill curve to get steeper. You actually drill quicker and save on rig time. And that example has actually been done recently in uh, the North Sea, where we enabled an operator to maximize his ROPs. So he wanted to, he had a drilling unit, he knew that drilling unit could drill in excess of 350 foot an hour uh, on a 17 and a, a 16 inch section, sorry. But he looked at the waste management as being that bottleneck. Mm. So by looking at that and providing a technical solution, which um, may be increasing the storage available on site so that if you're going to process, you can process in parallel with other drilling activities um, but not be that bottleneck. So, but what I'm trying to say is when we're trying to look at increase the drilling speed, the drilling ROP, um, we need to look at the entire waste management process. You don't just look at one aspect of it. We want to know, all right, from collecting or even at the shale shaker point of view, what is that efficient shaker model? How does it set up? How are you going to collect it? How are you going to store it in intermediate storage at site? Do you have enough space? How are you going to treat it? And then ultimately, how is it going to dispose of? And that is the value. Um, I mean, there are spin-off values such as the recovered oil, um, but that the value is knowing how that is all put together and how you, if you've got the right one going back. And then we can go back to a client and say, well, we, as the waste management provider, uh, enabled you to drill the well at, on average 350 foot an hour it saved you two days, which in this case was nearly a million dollars. We can't take all that uh, credit because the, the mud could uh, also enable them to drill quicker. Uh, the downhole tools could Yeah, be the directional able, guys able will take all that. the credit, so get yeah, in there exactly, early. But I mean, uh, we'll be the first people to raise our hands and say, well, if you didn't have a good waste management system, uh, you can't do it. But that goes back to your next question is, how do you quantify value of your system when other people are jockeying for position to say well we've actually enabled you to do that it wasn't them so that's probably a situation where you want to assign as much value as possible to the waste management makes sense oh. i was just say you know from a system perspective that is a really good point i think mm. i mean we all know that having really good people is important we all know mm. that understanding how these things work and people that can fix it quickly quickly is significant but um, you know, from my own experience, even just cutting conveyance, what a huge deal that was when I when offshore, when we had, uh, we did CRI a lot when I was in Azerbaijan and mm -hmm. every platform had a dedicated, dedicated well, but it was all about how quickly you could transfer cuttings if effectively to dispose of waste. And the customer was constantly concerned if any of that went down, how far can we, you know, how many cuttings boxes can we fill? until we run out of space and have to stop. Um, yeah. And we had all, you know, lag depth calculators to see what mm -hmm. ROP we could handle relative to whole size. But it was, it was all about that. 
um, is recognizing those bottlenecks. And it kind of goes back. We've, we've talked about Fred Dupriest a few times. who's a, a professor at Texas A&M University, but a very influential guy in the industry. And, uh, you know, he talks about your, what are your limiters? Um, mm-hmm. And his, his is central to drilling dynamics and mechanical specific energy, which is true. But what if you have a limiter on surface? Like, I can't process my waste. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, he says, well, find what's limiting you get rid of it and figure out how to get faster. Um, And if your ROP limiter is as simple as that equipment, how you're transferring things, um, it's just interesting to hear that when I think a lot of folks look at, you know, bit mechanics and, you know, downhole physics, which is very important. But uh, if you can't put the cuttings away, once you drilled them, you're not going as fast as you thought. Well, I think that that point is, it's very important and you when and you'll see it yourself when somebody comes to a company or they they're they're looking at one specific item it may be the tcc rotomill um but you never see a tcc rotomill on its own at a rig site it's part it's part of a package and um, you look at the we're in the middle east we're on artificial islands the tcc rotomill actually is a yeah it's a component of it uh, but in the grand scheme of things in terms of equipment spread out there it's very small it generates a lot of value don't get me wrong and but it's it's a very small component because we have to firstly be able to move the waste and when you mentioned there um about cuttings conveyance the prime mover selecting that first piece first line of defense and then someone says, well, what if that fails? Okay, you want contingency. You can't have contingency, contingency, contingency. But you can have a fairly robust, well, you will have a robust prime mover and a secondary uh, mover within that. And picking that, I think, is key. Um, to enable you to maximize your ROP um, as much as possible, moving those cuttings away from the shakers as a prime mover and then that secondary containment where you're going to put it is almost as important as important as uh, treating it at source, and because if you've got those two sorted, you've you've got a treatment solution right there uh, that'll work uh, how, on its own. I, I'm sorry, I, I, before I forget, I was going to ask how many people does it take to run the equipment? I mean, I mean, do you normally have two guys running per tower, or is it so, depends on the setup? It very much again, it's. The TCC rotor mill is part of the waste management package. So it really depends on the application. Offshore, um, we've probably got a bit more equipment spread. Um, so we're anywhere between, in 24 hours, between seven and 10 guys, okay. um, people. Um, onshore, we feel we can limit that down to four to six, between four and six. Um, but, but it very much dependent on where does our where do we start and stop? So if we're all the way back to the shakers, uh, which if you're a waste management company, you want to be taking the cuttings straight from the shakers or even supplying the shakers yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll collect it, we'll store it, and we'll treat it. So that's going to need manpower. Uh, and depending on the volumes, if we're taking waste from one, two, three, four rigs, uh, that personnel intensity will change. But the TC mill itself, Per shift, two guys to run it. You got an operator and then a guy floating around checking how the system's working, can run uh, retorts uh, and analysis on the byproduct as well. Okay, interesting. Um, before we sign off, we don't certainly want to respect your time. My question is, you know, we talked a little bit about limiters, but <clears throat> and the value certainly there, especially after having a conversation with you. But what's the biggest limiter for you guys, or the biggest challenge for actually? deploying this, you know, more broadly. Cause I, I, you know, I've been on the drilling side of things since 2004 and, and over my career, I I have yet to hear about this technology. And so what, what, what kind of limits you guys to getting it uh, in the hands of more companies? I think education of what waste management is, is key. So one of the things I mentioned at the start, and we're trying to educate not only our customers, but future drilling engineers, students, and new people to the industry and even legislative bodies. We're trying to educate them on waste management, what it is. Um, 
I don't want to sound negative, but when when they're creating a drilling program, waste management is always the last factor. And previously it was, well, we can put it in skips and haul it off. We can put it in trucks, haul it off. It's all right. Done. That's a waste management solution. And what I will say is a lot of people are paying more attention to the waste management aspect. It is a critical path item. Um, And the more education that all um, service companies are doing to say, okay, actually, you don't always have to haul it off. You can do something at source, be it with effective solids control, where you can maximize fluid recovery and reduce the solids content um, and minimize haul off, or be it through a, a fairly advanced system such as the TCC Rotomill, where you can take the cutting, treat it at source, recover value, and uh, create a more self-sustainable uh, solution. So our challenge at the moment is basically making sure that people are aware of what drill and waste management is and what the options are available to it because it doesn't just stop at drill cuttings it doesn't stop what comes out the well bore there's actually a lot of surface waste generated from drilling related activities so what we find as well is uh, slop uh, material so basically spent fluid spent mud I mean, nobody can ever define what slop is because it ranges from water lightly contaminated with mud that someone's walked through to drilling fluid that they just don't need anymore that they want to dispose of. So we look at the broad spectrum of what waste management, what waste materials generated at source related to drilling, and how we can treat it effectively in one place. And uh, if the drilling company, the operators see this they acknowledge it and they um, want to address it, then that's, that's great. Then we can provide a solution to do that. But it's, it's bringing waste management to the forefront of people's minds when planning a well is important. And that's where, that's where everything works. I mean, you'll see it yourself. When drilling fluids is up there, uh, downhole tools, cementing, when that's on the table and wants to be reviewed as part of the planning process, you're always going to get the best application for your job. Um, that's that's just number one when it comes to uh, proper flying. I think Definitely. you bring up a really good point just from the perspective of one thing that I see is when we talk to customers about problems, if they have a habit of a way of doing something, it's not a problem, even though they could do better. And so a lot of times, if you if you open up the conversation with, what problems are you having? They say, well, none. Um, and then we, you know, lo and behold, they're drilling wells that are underperforming relative to their peers in the area. We start finding all these other things that it's, you know, that's the way you do it. And if we change some of those behaviors, we're, you know, at the front of the pack again. And I can't help but think that waste management is one of those areas where it's, well, I know I can send it to a disposal site. So I always send it to a disposal site as opposed to maybe, just because I've never seen it as a problem, maybe I'm not looking at everything with kind of some skeptical lenses and revisiting this every once in a while as I don't have to do it the way I've always done it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we've got a lot of people, uh, we see a lot of eagerness to learn. These last two, this current downturn, the downturn a couple of years ago, People are very open-minded now about what else is out there because, a number one, they want uh, they want to uh, save costs, but they also want to be more efficient. And more efficient could be um, reducing lifts, reducing the amount of trucks on the road, being uh, just drilling a well quicker as well. I mean, there's operational, economical, uh, and health and safety uh, benefits for all of this uh, when it comes to waste management. So uh, people are more open-minded now, and that's probably why 15 years later from being in the drilling industry, you're probably seeing technology like this come to the forefront. And in different areas, there probably is new um, technologies being touted because that is the next best thing and something that could be a real benefit going forward. Allows them to get back drilling at this low oil price. Sure. Definitely. Well, well, uh, you know, you've really shined a lot of light on on uh, the technology and, and really, you know, helped answer and clear things up from, you know, from some of the, uh, you know, misconceptions I even had. Uh, I appreciate that. Matt, do you have anything else you wanted to ask or cover before we get going here? 
No, I, I appreciate it. I learned a lot. I mean, I've, I've like, I, I knew, I knew enough about it to be dangerous, but now I, I think, uh, I know a little more about, about the bigger picture. So I really appreciate yeah. that. Most definitely. Andrew, you got any closing last words, my man? Uh, no, I mean, like I say, one of the things, uh, with waste management is we want to always look at the, as you say, the bigger picture. It's not just one component. You don't come to us for just one thing. It is the full solution. And that full solution is going to yield the best return. So uh, not only do we want to turn the waste into value, but we also want to increase operational efficiency at the same time. Uh, and by doing that, we're looking at the making uh, waste management into the bigger picture and taking it to the forefront of people's minds uh, going forward. Most definitely. Well, I've certainly enjoyed the conversation with you gentlemen today. Uh, Andrew, what's the best way for people to reach out to to either yourself or uh, if folks are more interested about learning more? Well, one of the platforms we use uh, is LinkedIn. This is where I actually saw this podcast um, originally. Um, we, we do a series of LinkedIn infographics that tell you a bit about what we do and potentially what you can do for your operation going forward. Then okay. also there's our website. We've got a lot of new tools there. Um, we've got a, a value calculator, so you could actually calculate the potential value of your drill cuttings, what we could recover from that. So okay. we've got some good information there, links to our uh, SPE papers, our technology. And if you want to get in contact, there's, there's a way to contact a specialist through that. Um, Okay. And we'll get back in touch with you with any questions. Well, Andrew, if you don't mind, send me uh, some links to some of those tools. I mean, I think that, you know, the paper and then the, mm -hmm. you said the value calculator, um, um, those are handy. So uh, I, I certainly don't mind throwing those in the show notes for people to quickly access some of that stuff. I think would mm -hmm. be great. Yeah, I'll do that. Sure. Excellent. Well, uh, for all the listeners out there, we certainly appreciate the uh, support. If you could, please leave a review. Um, and again, if you want, you can also send us an email at the flowline podcast at aesfluids.com. If anyone has any experience with this technology, we'd love to hear about it. And uh, with that being said, gentlemen, we certainly appreciate your time and bye for now. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.